You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning. My name is Scott Mahan. I am the director of 514 Student Ministries here at Providence. It's a pleasure to greet you all this morning. Uh, here at Providence, we have a simple vision that is to make the gospel ignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe that they are the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And to that end, today we're going to be continuing our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we look at the life of Jesus and we compare it to our culture who tries to find identity apart from him. And today we're going to be uh, in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, there should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. But again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. If you're able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? I know, I get it. Why was it wasted? Uh, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you have always have, uh, excuse me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chiefs, uh, excuse me, the chief priests, in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. It is good to see each and every one of you this morning. Uh, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and I am excited to bring the word this morning. Uh, like Scott said, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark. And this week marks, uh, no pun intended, a shift in the narrative. And so this week begins what is commonly known as the Passion Week. So we're in the last week of Jesus's life and we're going to start seeing some events unfolding. And uh, we have an interesting one that happens here this morning. And so I don't want to waste a lot of time uh, introdu introducing myself or the series because we do have a lot of work to do. I went over in the first service, so I'm going to move very quickly during this beginning portion. So uh, for 2,000 years, uh, the, since the dawn of the church, the church has argued and debated about almost almost everything uh, about it. So everything from uh, theology, uh, how sovereign is God? Sorry, I, I got to acknowledge this. Uh, Jeremy just texted me and said, <laughs> he, he goes, that, that pun was absolutely intended uh, early. <laughs> Golly, he can uh, mark this as a win that he actually got me this time. I got to turn my notifications off here on my iPad. Golly, man, I'm, gonna I'm never going to live that down. For 2,000 years since the dawn of the church, it's argued about everything under the sun. So from theology, how sovereign is God? Are the gifts still active today? Was Christ actually God? 
Uh, is the Trinity necessary? What is the extent of sin? Can we get rid of it on the side of heaven? Are demons actually real? Is the nation of Israel still God's covenanted people? Or is that now the church? Things like that in theology. In ecclesiology, should there be a uh, church membership role? Uh, can only men be elders or can women be a part of that too? Uh, should there be elders, period. Uh, eschatology, when will Christ return? When will the tribulation happen? Will it happen? Uh, sh- it, well, at the end of the day, is God going to save the Jews first and then us? There's a lot of these questions that have been argued about over and over and over again since the dawn of the church. However, there has been one thing that has never been debated amongst faithful Orthodox Christian churches, and that is that all of creation is designed to worship God. That issue has never been debated. Maybe we're going to argue about how we're going to worship God, but what is not debated is that we ought to. Uh, that the Bible is clear. Romans eleven thirty six says it this way, and from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So everything from the largest mountain to the lowest organism is de- designed to praise God if by nothing else because of its own existence. God created the world, he sustains the world, he governs the world, and he is doing his saving work in the world in order to display his glory. Listen to what the Bible says uh, else about creation. In Psalm 19.1, it says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 96.12, the trees of the forest sing for joy. Psalm 98.8, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Psalm 65.13, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks and valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Isaiah 44.23, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Romans 8.22 says that for for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the heavens, the mountains, the hills, the forests, the trees, uh, the rivers, and the meadows, they all were created to sing the glories of the God of the universe. Moreover, not only was creation generally created to this end, but mankind, us, specifically was. We, unlike the rest of creation, were set apart, made in the image and likeness of God, designed to praise him. God is the potter, we are the clay, and we give glory to the potter because of our very existence. Isaiah forty-three twenty-one says this, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. First Peter 2, 9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And look at this last one, Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7. I, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, and everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There is no debate. God created us to the end of worshiping him and bringing glory to him as creator. 
We are a dependent creation that is constantly outflowing in, uh, in worship in one direction or another. There is no debate that we are designed to worship. The, the question that we have to ask is what direction is it heading? There's no debate about if we're going to, it's where. If it isn't directed at God, it will be directed at something or someone else. And when we worship, as we commonly see throughout scripture whenever worship is discussed, you see different characteristics that appear every single time. You see intentionality. So the direction of your life is determined by your object of worship. You see sacrifice. You will make sacrifices for your object of worship and you are willing to lay down people or things or direction for this object of worship. There's rituals that are created, disciplines that are had. So your rhythm of life is determined by your object of worship. You derive affections from uh, this object of worship. Uh, so you're emotionally affected by the outcome of how your interaction goes with this thing. And then lastly, you bid others to follow you in the worship of this thing. And if they don't, in the worst case scenario, you criticize them for not following you. So if this is Jesus, if that's your object of worship, then this is beautiful and growth inside of the soul and heart begins to happen. Human flourishing starts to take place. Whenever you're intentional about living your life to Christ, the direction of your life is to the end of honoring Jesus, things go well. When you make sacrifices in your life in order to worship Jesus faithfully, things go well. When you create disciplines in your life to make sure and ensure that every, every area and every sphere honors him, Things go well when you derive your affections from Christ and not how well things are going in your life. Things start to flourish. And lastly, when you bid others to follow you into worshiping Jesus, things go well. Things are beautiful. If, this, if the object of your worship is not Jesus, things play out very differently. Although the same process takes place, the outcome is much different. For example, take sports. If you start to worship sports and whatever sport that may be, and it's the object of your worship, you will start to build an intentional lifestyle around said sport. So the rhythm and direction of your life is determined by sports. You'll make sacrifice what you do throughout your week, how you plan your week, who you, who you hang out with, who you don't hang out with. You'll make sacrifices financially in order to watch or play sports. You'll create rituals and disciplines. You'll go to the gym. You'll get stronger. You'll run. You'll get faster. You'll take supplements. You're at the top of your game if you're the object of your worship is sports. You'll derive affections from your ability to perform at the highest level, and you'll allow yourself to receive the applause from doing it well. And then lastly, you'll bid others to follow you. In the best case scenario, you become an ambassador for this sport. In the worst case scenario, you criticize people that don't love your sport. You see, the, same, the process happens regardless of what, you, what it is that you're worshiping. The, the question we have to ask is not if we're going to do it, it's what are we worshiping? And the point is that if worship is rightly directed, flourishing of the human heart will happen and we will walk in wisdom. And if worship is wrongly directed, then we will, be, we will begin to make questionable decisions in our life, and it will ultimately be our ruin. And what we're going to see on display in the text today 
are two case studies of what it looks like when worship goes right and when worship goes wrongly. And if you walk away with nothing else, this is what I hope that you leave here with. That's that when worship is rightly directed, we will not hesitate to worship God or cap the capacity of our worship to him. My prayer is that as we begin to engage the text this morning, that we would allow the spirit of God to to survey our hearts, to survey whether or not we have a wholehearted approach at loving God and following him. So before I jump into the text and before we start reading, would you pray with me that the spirit would engage here, that the spirit would humble us to the place where we sit underneath the word, not above it, and we allow it to shape who we are this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and you are the only source of life that we can go to. You're the only source of joy and peace that we can run to. So God, this morning, as we hide in your word, would you speak to us? If there's any area of our life that we have worshiped that is not you, would you reveal it? Would you, would you engage those hidden areas of our hearts? Those darkened doors that we haven't opened or refused to open. Would you engage those areas and lovingly lead us back to you? Clean those Uh, those dark areas out so that way all of our life can be inside of the light and we don't have to walk feeling like a fraud. But God, help us to live out in the open where we can be known by you and loved by you. So God, we, uh, we look to you this morning. Be with us as we read. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right, let's jump in. Mark chapter 14, verses one through two says this. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now the backdrop of this story is the Jewish feast of Passover and the unleavened bread in Jerusalem. Uh, It was a time of thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance uh, of the Hebrew people from Egyptian bondage that we saw in uh, Exodus chapter 12. Uh, And this Jewish Independence Day included the slaughter of the Passover lamb. And if you remember from our Exodus series, or if you just watched the Prince of Egypt, that was a good one, uh, whose blood on the doorpost 1,400 years earlier had caused the death angel to pass over each home where he saw it, sparing the life of the firstborn in that family. And if you didn't have the blood covering the doorpost, your firstborn was uh, killed. Now, in light of this celebration, in the shadows of secrecy, the Sanhedrin, which were, that was a, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking to arrest Jesus and kill him. And functionally speaking, it makes sense uh, why they would not want to cause an uproar. Uh, in Jerusalem during this time, it was incredibly crowded. There was anywhere from four to five times more people in Jerusalem than there normally were. And uh, these people were not just any normal, regular people in town trying to enjoy a relaxing vacation. No, these are people who were celebrating at the feast and were very excitable. And so any kind of sway of the mob caused a massive riot and they were afraid of this. Uh, Several decades later, Josephus reported that during one of the Passovers, 30,000 people were trampled and crushed because of a riot. 
30,000 people is a lot of people. If you've ever had 30,000 of anything, it is a lot. So let alone the loss of human life because of a riot. They wanted nothing to do with that. Now, spiritually speaking, the Sanhedrin wanted to do this stealthily because they knew what they were doing was wrong. The truth is, is that if you really believed that what you were doing was right and honorable in the sight of the Lord, it did not matter how many people were present because they would have agreed this is what the Lord would have called. But no, they were going outside of the law. They were going outside of what God would have them do. And they were going to do and accomplish their own agenda. This is why they wanted to do it stealthily. To them, it doesn't matter if they were doing it wrong. They were undeterred. And famously, much of early Jewish literature reported that high priests made it a regular practice of bullying those that opposed them. And these men were the mob bosses of their time that would go throughout the town and manipulate uh, any, through any means to keep uh, their power and status amongst the people. They had had enough of Jesus, they had had enough of his uh, antics, they had enough of his followers, and were planning to take him out. And not just him, because we'll learn in the book of John that Jesus wasn't the only target. Lazarus was too. As if it wasn't bad enough that Lazarus already died and was resurrected, they were going to kill him again. They were going to make sure he died for real this time. They were going to take him out because Lazarus represented the very message of Christ that Jesus uh, resurrects the dead to life. That was the message of the gospel that Jesus was bringing for himself that would be proclaimed to everyone else who would believe in him. And so Lazarus was a walking representation of that. If they took out Jesus and they take out Lazarus, case closed. At least so they thought. Now, logically speaking, you would think that they would not make this move. Because logically speaking, if Jesus is calling himself the Lamb of God and that he's going to be sacrificed and that his blood was going to cover all the people, that dur- then during the Passover time would be the wrong time to kill this man. Because you would only be making a martyr out of him, you would only make him a hero, and so doing that at all would be a foolish move. It's not logical. But they were not thinking logically. And the truth is, is that this is what happens when you direct your worship away from God and start serving your own agendas. It, it leads to ultimately to your own destruction. But I don't want to get, get ahead of myself here. Let's keep reading. All right, what we need to know before we uh, read verses 3 through 9 is that what's typical of Christian literature is that uh, they will uh, introduce a plot, pause, go to a completely separate element of the story that, te- that speaks in light of the greater narrative and then jump right back in. It's common uh, practice among Christian literature, especially early on. And so that's what's happening here. So the chief scribes and the, uh, the chief priests and scribes are now trying to kill Jesus. They're looking to do it. Pause and a little bit of a flashback, which we'll see here in a minute. They're going to tell the story uh, about Mark is going to give this account of Simon the leper and what happens at his house. And then It's going to jump right back into Judas. So that's what we need to know here in uh, verses three through nine. It says this. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could, not have, uh, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. So many believe that Simon the leper, this man's house, is, this, is the leper from Matthew 26 that Jesus healed. And uh, many believe that because a leper is not allowed to host a party or have someone at their house unless they are healed or unless they're, they still have leprosy and invite other people with leprosy. But there can't be a mixture of the two people. So the fact that they are there having dinner together means that he is healed. And the only means by which we see people get healed from leprosy in the New Testament is the healing of Christ. So it only assumes that this is what's happening here, especially since Jesus is the one who's at the party. So, and this wasn't just any other host of the party. It wasn't just Simon the leper who had been healed by Jesus, but it's also thought to believe that this is the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which explains the connection to Jesus outside of the healing. Now, in John chapter 12, we learn a few more specifics about what actually happened at this dinner. So we learn that this is, a, this is not just any woman, which is what Mark says. Mark says a woman approached Jesus. It's not just any woman. This is Mary. We learn that this is a, the same Mary that we see in Luke chapter 10 and John 11 and John 12. This is the Mary. Uh, when you hear the story Mary and Martha, this is her. This is her. And this was no ordinary flask. A normal flask in their time was similar to what we buy whenever we go buy cologne or perfume. It's usually a one to two ounce uh, flask. That's a typical flask you see during this time. This is not the case. In John chapter 12, we learn that this is not an ounce or two ounces. This is a pound. This is a pound of stuff. She got the good stuff. And this stuff is going to be used com to completely pour on Jesus. Just imagine any woman in the room, imagine your perfume, a full pound of it. It's a lot. It's a lot. 16 times what you typically buy at the store. And this perfume was, uh, was called spikenard, and it was made from an extremely rare plant in India, um, and it was worth about a year's wages uh, for any normal person. It was an expensive, expensive ordeal. And in all probability, the overwhelming majority of women who lived during that day did not make enough money to buy such a quantity of precious perfume. And so likely this flask of perfume that they had was owned by the woman's family by Mary's family, and perhaps it was even a family heirloom. So there was a lot writing on her using this. And when we say flask, we don't mean like we have it, where you just unscrew the top and screw it back on. No, this was a completely sealed encasement jar that when you broke it open, it was done. It was it. You had to use it. If you didn't use it, it was gone. If you, if you don't use it, you do lose it. It's that kind of situation here. But an interesting note uh, before we move forward about this situation with Mary. That just like we see in Luke chapter 10, in John chapter 11, and in John 12, this is the same Mary that is always found every time she's introduced at the feet of Jesus. This is the same Mary who has consistently devoted her life to Christ at every chance that she saw. She didn't care about what people thought about her. She didn't care. She certainly didn't care what Martha thought about her when Martha called her a lazy woman. She didn't care what 
what the disciples thought about her and said that she's being wasteful. She did not care. She wanted to worship Jesus. And she didn't care about cultural norms and what that would look like for her. Because in this time, a, a woman normally would never approach a man at a public meal setting unless she was serving the food. So she approaches Jesus with nothing at hand, not following what would normally happen, breaking all of these social rules just so that she can worship Jesus. She did not give one single care about cultural conventions. Jesus was her Lord and Jesus was her master. She loved him deeply and would have done anything for him. She wanted everyone to know the, the amount of value that she was willing to place in worshiping Jesus. She didn't care what it cost. She didn't care the penalty that she would have to pay. She didn't care what people would think of her. All she knew is that she wanted to worship Jesus. And the truth is, is that in our day and age, especially, people have a hard time understanding things like this, this amount of devotion to something, unless it's culturally acceptable. People have a hard time understanding what they would call radicalism. The world, and sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with a moderate and measured devotion to Christ. They'll never have a problem with it. They will have little or no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable and convenient Christianity. Most people will be perfectly fine with that. However, once you begin to actually follow Jesus and live intentionally in your worship of him, you will begin to be criticized for the decisions that you make, just as Mary was. When you walk away from a real career, you'll be marked as someone who is living a wasted life. If you walk away from a normal normal rhythm of going to college right after high school to spend time with the Lord to make a decision, you might be accused of being reckless. If you give sacrificially of your finances to the Lord in order to worship him that way, your financial advisor may tell you that you are being unwise and you should save instead. If you choose to close your business one day out of the week for worship and Sabbath, and the, the business minds of the world will label you as foolish. Walk away from a hobby or sport that you and your friends and family love, and you might be labeled a radical and ironically cultish. But how does Jesus respond? He says that she has done a beautiful thing. And listen, the point isn't that she gave something extremely valuable in and of itself. It was that she gave what she could. The exact same praise was given to a widow that only gave a penny. You see, it's not about the amount of good and great and valuable things that you bring. That's not how it works. It, it, the, it doesn't work that if you give more, God gives you more. It's not, that's not how that goes. God is ruthlessly after our heart. When I think of a similar story in the, uh, in the Old Testament with Cain and Abel, the issue wasn't necessarily that Cain brought a bad offering. The problem was that Abel had a pure heart in his sacrifice and Cain didn't. You see, Cain sought after his own desire, his own pleasure, and his own status. Cain only cared about himself. So he served himself first, kept what he thought was the best, and then gave the remainders over to God, which God said, that is a poor sacrifice. I will not be half-heartedly worshiped. 
Abel instead took the first fruits of what he had, gave it to God. We don't know if, it's, if it was more than, uh, or Abel did. We don't know if it was more than Cain or not. We just know that it was from the heart. That's what we do know. And so the problem wasn't that Abel was better than Cain. The problem was that Abel had a pure heart that loved God and Cain didn't. Mary didn't go and find the half-empty bottle of cheap cologne to anoint the head of Christ. No, her heart was full of worship, pushing past the fear of man and worshiped Jesus by grabbing the most valuable thing that she had. God will not be worshiped half-heartedly, which leads me to my first point, which is wholehearted worship leads to wholehearted life. What do I mean by that? Jesus made three observations about what Mary did. He said that she did all that she could. In other words, she gave all that she had. She left nothing back. Two, her act of love was also prophetic. So not only was she anointing Jesus with the most valuable thing that she had, so she just wanted to show some level of sacrifice and love, but Jesus says that whether she realized this or not, Jesus says that she was anointing him for burial. And then lastly, Jesus promises that her sacrifice will never be forgotten. And we know that that's true because we're talking about it today. This type of sacrifice and life of worship leads to an abundance of joy. In Psalm 4, it talks about this a little bit. David, who's a king who has anything that he could ever want, says that God, when I'm in your presence, I have more joy than when my grain and my wine abound. That he doesn't care how much things are going well in the fields or at the wine presses. He doesn't care. As long as he's got God, he is perfectly fine. See, God desires the whole heart and will not be satisfied with less. And when we do this, we tap into a love that we cannot find anywhere else. And this doesn't mean perfection. I mentioned David a second ago. David was far from perfect. He was far from perfect. He had a man killed. He committed adultery. He had a, a child out of wedlock. David made a ton of mistakes, lied, likely lied continually for up to a year before Nathan even called him out on it. David was continually walking in sin. But what does the Bible say about him? That he was a man after God's own heart. So it has nothing to do with being perfect. It has everything to do with the status and posture of the heart towards God. Peter was the same way. He had his own imperfections. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is a hairline difference between Peter and Judas. It is small. They both betrayed God. They both served their own agendas. One repented, one didn't. One led to life, became the father of the church, preached one of the best sermons, kicked off the Protestant church as we know it. The other one didn't. The other one led to his own death, his own destruction. The only difference, repentance. That's it. A heart that was after God. Both were failures. Both made mistakes. One chose to love God. One accepted the grace and mercy that was offered to him. God isn't asking for a perfect, undefiled heart at all times in order to experience the love that he has. No, God desires for your heart to be dependent upon him in a radical way. So what does this look like? We already talked about it. It looks like living your life intentionally 
and making decisions about the direction of your life in so much that it would honor God. It means making sacrifices in your life to ensure that you are able to honor him faithfully, that nothing takes the seat. It means you create disciplines and rituals in your life that ensure that you are walking faithfully. It means that you don't derive your affections from how great everything's going in your life. And then when things go wrong, you remove those affections. Instead, you derive your affections from God, which is stable and anchored and never leaving. And then lastly, you bid others to follow you. And in the best case scenario, you become an ambassador for Christ. And you begin to fight against the dark things of the world. Wholehearted worship leads to a wholehearted life that glorifies God and brings blessings to the world around it. Wholehearted worship leads to human flourishing. And when you try to find beauty apart from Christ, when you give not a wholehearted approach, but a half-hearted approach, that's when you get Judas. Let's keep reading. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 to 11 says this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, before we start talking about this text, I want to read John's account of this exact same story uh, that we've been reading because I think it illuminates the passage a little bit and gives us a, a window into Judas's character. So John chapter 12, verses one through six says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So this story is important because like I said, it's a callback, it's a flashback. So this is six days before Jesus is betrayed, four days prior to the story that we heard at the very beginning about the chief, scribe, uh, the chief priests and scribes trying to find Jesus and to kill him stealthily. So this is before Judas ever betrayed him. And what, what we see here is an important moment into the life of Judas, where Mark is vague about who's, who the disciples were um, and that they were indignant. John is not vague. Judas is the one who's leading the charge. Judas is the one causing division not because he actually cared about serving the poor, but because he wanted the money that would have come from the jar. He wasn't even concerned about Mary losing something valuable for herself. Like he wasn't even a good friend that was like, hey, listen, like, wait a minute. No, he, he wanted to sell it so he could have it. And this text actually implies that Judas has been doing this the whole time. That he's been getting money on the side because they'll get the offering, put it in the money bag, and then he has free reign to it. Jesus immediately responds and replies by telling him to leave her alone. And so what we see in this moment is a juxtaposition against 
right worship and wrong worship. So on the one side, you have Mary, who, because she was a woman, she had no real standing. And Judas, who was a man, and he was one of the apostles. Mary gave what she could to Jesus. Judas took what he could get for Jesus. Mary blesses her Lord. Judas betrayed his Lord. Mary loved her Lord. Judas used his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. Mary is notable forever for her devotion. Judas is notorious forever for his betrayal. Now here's why I bring up this timeline. Because this happened six days prior to the actual betrayal of Christ, you have this moment where Judas pontificates in front of everyone, making himself look better with a fake piety, and Jesus sees straight through it. Jesus exposes him for what he truly is and doesn't allow him to get the accolades that he desired in that moment. He doesn't get the applause. And given the fact that Judas sells Christ for an absurdly low amount, my guess is that his idol was exposed and it humiliated him in front of his peers. I mean, the, the amount that he sold him for was absurdly low. In, in Exodus chapter 21, we realize that 30 pieces of silver is what you give for a slave that was gored by an oxen. So if you had a slave or if, if, a, if, a, if, somebody had, if you had an oxen that gored somebody else's slave, you had to pay them 30 pieces of silver. This is what Judas sold him for. So it wasn't for some massive amount of gain. It wasn't like he was getting rich off of this. The tone that it comes off is that he was humiliated and acted out of vengeance instead. And instead of repenting and turning to faith in the sa- uh, to the Savior who was right in front of him, he angrily sells him off with a heart of vengeance. This sounds very similar to the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. That Joseph is riling up his brothers about how he's the best kid. And instead of the brothers going to the dad and saying, hey, I feel like you were giving partiality to Joseph. I just, I need to know that you love me. I need to know that you care about me. Please tell me that what I'm perceiving is not correct. Instead of doing that, instead of having a conversation, they instead, instead kidnap their younger brother and sell him into slavery. And God ends up rectifying it. But they make a questionable decision because the direction of their worship was not God. It was their own agenda. It was their own pride. And that's the lie. The same grace and mercy and forgiveness is offered to Judas, but he refuses. And instead, he becomes enslaved by this anger, enslaved by his idol. When your affections start to go somewhere other than the Lord, you start to make questionable decisions. Listen to what Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 14 says. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and with wonder upon wonder, and the the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be be hidden." When your heart drifts away from the Lord, even if you are checking the right boxes, your path begins to drift and you begin to make a wreck of your life. You see in this passage of Isaiah, they are doing all of the right things. 
They're going to church. They're going to their home group. They're serving well. They're attending members meetings. They're doing all the things that they're supposed to do. But it says that their hearts are far from them and the, even the praise and fear of God is, because, is just because they've been taught it. These are the people that would say, oh, well, I'm a Christian because my dad is. There is a marked difference between someone that says they are a believer and someone that actually is. Somebody that claims Christianity but lives their own life apart from God and someone that marks and directs his life based off of the belief in Jesus. Friends, there is no such thing as a small drift away from God. There may be a slow drift, but there's no small one. And it leads me to my second point, which is a wholehearted idolatry leads to a wholehearted death. And I know that seems like it's a, a bit of an extreme statement and does it really lead to a wholehearted death? Well, one of the biggest lies that we are told, not only by the world, and the, but also the enemy, is that we are able to compartmentalize our sins and feelings away. We try to hide, engage in guilty pleasures, and rationalize that this won't affect anyone else, and that this is a victimless sin or a victimless crime. Friends, there is no such thing as a victimless sin or victimless crime. When an idol grips a part of your heart, it grips all of it. As we said earlier, whenever you start to worship something that's not God, the process of worship will begin to take place. The direction of your life will be guided towards this idol. You'll start making sacrifices. And sometimes, depending on the idol, that sacrifice may be your family, may be loved ones, may be friends. You'll start making sacrifices that put them in jeopardy. It's no longer a victimless crime because of the sacrifices that are made. You'll start creating disciplines, a rhythm of life that's directed towards this worship. You'll derive affections from it and you'll bid others to follow you. Judas was so wrapped up in his idol that he didn't even rationalize the idea that he was selling away his friend that had walked with him for three years as a slave. He didn't even take a, a, a moment to just talk to Jesus, confess what he was going through, say that this was a, that he felt humiliated. He couldn't be honest because he had to be at the top. And this is what happens to people that really feel like they need to be in control. That when you're in control, if you have a control idol, what you start to do is you clamp down because you don't want to lose control, but then you do and so you clamp down even harder and then you do lose control again and you clamp down even harder, all in all in all, suffocating the life around you and the lives around you because you have to be in control and it grips you and enslaves you. And this is what happened to Judas. The truth is, is that Mary worshiped her savior and sacrificed her most valuable possession, but Judas worshiped himself and sacrificed his friend. Giovanni Diodati, an Italian theologian in the 1500s, said it this way, he who lives in this life takes no other care but to please himself and his own carnal appetites, and therein only bestows all his means, shall at the last reap no fruit thereby but perdition. And contrarywise, he who employs his whole life in obeying the motions of the Holy Spirit shall receive the reward of everlasting life. 
when we sow into the heart of sin, the only reward that we will receive is a fruit of pain and dysfunction. Sure, maybe we won't have someone killed as Judas did, but our decision-making will begin to deteriorate our life. So friends, what does it look like to worship Jesus? Romans 12 gives us a good example. Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Juxtapose against what Isaiah said about losing discernment when you drift away from God, Romans says that when you worship God, you gain it. When you worship God and follow him, you are able to discern what is good, acceptable, and perfect because you are connected to the one who is good, acceptable, and perfect. When you drift away, your discernment starts to fade, your wisdom starts to fade, and you start making decisions that ultimately will lead to your ruin. Friends, there is a better option than worshiping an idol, and that's turning to Jesus. Oftentimes we run to idols because of what they appear to promise. They promise a life apart from God and they promise that they can do it better than he can. And the truth is is that they never can. Friends, we have a bid to live a life pleasing to God. And listen, there is nothing that we can do by by the way that we live that would add or diminish the character of God. God is so wholly set apart from us and there is coming a day where we, have to, we will have to give an account for our lives. But there is a way today that we can live our lives that either pleases God or provokes his discipline. And it's not because he's mad at you, it's because he loves you deeply. And we will never do this perfectly. But the right posture of our hearts is that to the best that we are able to live our lives with intention, live our lives sacrificing to the Lord. We need to be able to look into our lives and ask ourselves, where are we drifting? What needs to die on the altar in order that I might worship God faithfully? We need to create rhythms in our life that allow us to be faithful. Whether those rhythms are meeting with people, reading your Bible or prayer, there, is, there are areas that we can grow to ensure that we are living faithfully. We need to derive our affections from God's presence. And lastly, we need to bid others to follow in our footsteps. There's a deep call for us to be faithful, but there's a further call that people would, that people would imitate us. Imitate us as we imitate Christ. Friends, God is desperately drawing you to himself and away from the things that are gripping you on a daily basis. God isn't some social prude that wants to keep you away from being happy. No, he is a loving God who wants to give you the greatest thing that exists. It's himself. And so friends, my my bid to you this morning is to lay a hold of that. Lay a hold of the God that is here with you and for you. Let's pray. God, as we prayed this morning at the beginning, there's nowhere else that we can go. There's no well that we can draw from, no trinket we can own, no friend that we could have that's better than you. 
So God, this morning, would you help our souls to know that? That if there are hidden away areas of our life that have gripped us, would you bring it into the light and remind us that we are free in Christ? God, that for freedom you have set us free and that we can live a life that honors you and worships you. A life that's full of life, full of joy, full of peace that can't be found anywhere else. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.